You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Grab your Bible, if you got it, and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. And just let me set the stage as you turn there. Um, Today, we're kicking off a short two-week series on the Bible that we have titled, It Is Written. And this is part of a broader focus that we're going to place on the Bible this year as a church. And so the burden behind this focus uh, comes from the fact that pastors and church leaders have been talking about for years now that uh, for whatever reason, by and large, more and more people who identify themselves as Christians in our culture in the West uh, don't really read their Bibles and don't engage the Bible on a daily basis. And so we're making a huge push this year to read through the Bible together as a church. And so that means we're encouraging all of our members to read through the Bible this year. And to make that possible, we've teamed up with the Bible Project based out of Portland. And so the Bible Project is a very simple Bible reading plan. In just about 15 minutes a day, if that, you can read through the whole Bible in a year. And so it teaches you how to read through the Bible as you actually read through the whole thing for yourself. Uh, It helps you understand how the Bible fits together and the grand story that it's telling and what that has to do with you. Uh, And then plus, it has videos. And the videos are mesmerizing. Amen, people are saying, for all the visual learners. Uh, your kids will love the videos, so um, strongly encourage you to do that. You can go and uh, download the app right now on your phone if you want, the Read Scripture app. That's what it looks like. Or if you don't have a smartphone, you can actually go to their website, thebibleproject.com, and you can get the reading plan. We started this on January 1st, so if you haven't done, jumped in yet, you're a week behind. That is okay. You can start this afternoon. You can catch up as you go, but we strongly encourage you to do this uh, with us this year. So, um, so what we wanted to do as we just kind of kick off this year of reading through the scriptures together is we wanted to take the next couple of weeks to just sort of do a general introduction to the Bible and ask questions like, what is the Bible? Where did it come from? Is it reliable? Can I trust it? How do you read it? Why does it even matter for our lives? So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian and you have questions or struggles about the Bible, or if you're in this room and you are a Christian and you have questions and struggles about the Bible, I'd put myself in that category, then uh, this series is for you. And so uh, our hope is that in this series, uh, in the next year and in the next, in the coming years, really, is that you will see that the Bible does matter for your life because it's God's self-disclosure to you. It's God's revelation to you so that you can know him and experience the life that you were created for and that Jesus has made possible for you. So uh, with that kind of extended introduction, just to set the stage, let's look at the, the passage uh, that we're going to talk about. So look with me to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we'll start reading in verse 17. We'll read through verse 20, and uh, this is what Jesus says. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish... The law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not not a dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands or commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's uh, pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we just sang, it really is your breath that fills our lungs. And so we praise you with that same breath. And it's your breath that has breathed out the scriptures. And so I pray that just as we sit and soak in your breath and in your presence this morning, that we would hear from your scriptures what it is you would have us to hear. And I pray that you would get me out of the way, get us out of the way, get distractions out of the way, and, and really meet us right where we are this morning and, and bring us into um, really a life-changing encounter with the real Jesus as we listen to you speak to us this morning, Jesus. And so for skeptical hearts or for sad hearts or for wounded hearts or for happy hearts or depressed hearts or wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray, God, that you would meet us right where we are with the truth and the grace of your word, that we might know you and experience the life that you've created us for. Stir up in us a passion for your word. And I pray that we would learn to read it, to know it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to quote it, to teach it to our children, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, come and do what, um, what we can't do on our own, I pray, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, take a look at this picture of me from March of 2013. Uh, somebody said, wow. Okay, that's my, uh, that's my oldest daughter, Lucy, who will now be five this March. And... Um, <laughs> Did you just call me a hippie? Uh, I mean, I do have longer hair there. So um, this is a, me. This is a, we're standing inside the first house we ever bought in Kansas City. As you can see from the photo, I'm about 30 pounds heavier, and I hadn't learned how to comb my hair yet. So, um, hence, what I really want you to see in this picture is the not so subtle, massive elliptical in the background. You see the elliptical behind me? See how it's kind of it's kind of sticking out from behind me there. Uh, if there's one thing that has almost ruined my marriage in the last 10 years, it's been my relationship with that elliptical. So uh, about a year before that picture was taken, I convinced my wife, Carrie, that we desperately needed an elliptical in our lives. It was part of this resolution to be more healthy, and so I'd read that the most popular piece of home workout equipment for cardio is an elliptical. It's good for your knees and all this junk. So I did all this research and kind of against her better judgment, went and pulled the trigger and bought this thing and brought that baby home and put it in my basement and used it three times. Uh, and so, you know, it was all beautiful and shiny and we really, <laughs> it pretty much sat in my basement for a year and collected dust. Um, the most use we got out of it, true story, is that it was right next to our laundry room in the basement. So we would hang our clothes on it to let them dry. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so that was what we paid hundreds of dollars for an elliptical for. And so uh, my wife's already frustrated with me because we bought this thing that she told me that we would never use. And so I figured it'd be a good idea at that point to go ahead and convince her that we should just bring it into the living room. So my wife actually loves me enough to let me bring an elliptical into our living room. And so it, <laughs> there it is, man, this massive eyesore in the living room, it became the focal point of our living room. The first thing you see when you enter into our house is this huge industrial, ugly piece of exercise equipment. Um, and there it is. And so um, I thought, you know, surely if it's not in our basement, but it's in our living room, I'll actually use it. But um, raise your hand if you think I used it. No. Okay. So for the next year, I used it maybe a couple times. It just sat in my living room and collected dust and mocked me every time I walked past it. Uh, and so, true story, um, I tried to bring it with us to Paragold when we moved, and Carrie said, no, <laughs> no, 
you are selling it. You've never used it. Uh, and so we sold it. Um, somebody else's problem now. But the reason why I, I share that story with you is because I actually think that my relationship with the elliptical is a powerful parallel and picture of our relationship with the Bible. So I knew a little bit about the elliptical. I knew the elliptical was good for you. I could tell you why you should use it. I knew that if you use it, it'll make you strong and healthy and fit. And it pretty much sat in my living room and collected dust. Uh, and if you're honest, how many of you in this, no, no condemnation, if you're honest, how many of you in this room would say that pretty much describes your relationship with the Bible? You're a Christian, and so you know the Bible's good for you. You can tell others why the Bible's good for you. You know that you need to read the Bible. You know that if you read the Bible, it'll make you, you know, it'll, it'll cause you to grow, and you'll be spiritually healthy and mature, and your relationship with God will be strong, and you know it's a good thing, and yet... If you're honest, it pretty much just sits in your living room and collects dust. Or maybe you grab it once a week and you dust it off and you bring it to the 930. But then for the rest of your week, it goes back on the nightstand or back in your purse or your man bag or whatever. Or back in the, you know, on the bookshelf and it pretty much just sits there throughout the week. So the reality is this is the most popular book ever read, ever, ever, ever you know, ever written. Um, it's sells something like 25 million copies a year, best-selling book of all time, but one, one writer recently called it the best-selling book never read, Ben Irwin said. And so Irwin goes on to talk about, let's face it, we live in a culture where reading the Bible is not really valued anymore. Uh, things are becoming increasingly more secular, so the Bible is being removed from society and the public sector, and it's getting removed from schools. And we as Christians get upset about that, and rightly so. But I want to invite you to consider, might it be true that we do the same thing functionally in our own lives? We've removed the scriptures from our life. We don't read it. And we don't know it. And I don't know if this is necessarily true of all of you. It may not be true of all of you. It was true for me for most of my life as a Christian. I grew up not... I knew a little bit about the Bible because I grew up in church, but I didn't read the Bible. I didn't understand why it mattered. It did, I, I just I didn't, I didn't engage it. And so all the research says that by and large, Christians, those who identify themselves as Christians in our culture, don't, don't read the Scriptures, don't know the Scriptures, don't, have never read the Bible cover to cover, which is crazy if you think about it, that we base our life off a book we've never read, cover to cover, the whole thing at least. And so all of this has led researcher George Barna to conclude the Christian body in America is immersed in a crisis of biblical illiteracy. And here's why this matters. It's going to be a little bit of an extended introduction, so hang with me. But here's why this matters. I think it's huge that we see this. One of the most shocking things I think Jesus says in all the scriptures is what he says to the religious leaders in Mark chapter 12. Jesus looks at these guys and he says, Is not this the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor you know the power of God. So what's shocking to me about that is Jesus says this to a group of people that is not illiterate to the scriptures. <laughs> these men and women are experts on the scriptures. They've read the thing many times and Jesus looks at them and says, You know you're wrong. You're way off. The totality of your life trajectory is way off because you don't know the scriptures 
and therefore you don't know and you don't experience the power and the presence of God in your life. And so for many of you in this room, I wonder, you know, do you find yourself in that place? You come in and you're asking questions. Your soul is asking questions like, why does my soul feel so dry? Why does God feel so distant? Why, you know, why does my relationship with God feel stagnant? And Jesus is inviting us to consider, might it be that the reason we don't experience, the, we're not in tune and in line with the power and the presence of God at work in our lives and in our midst because we don't know the scriptures. And so I think all of this leads us to ask one simple question I want to try to answer today. And that is, why? Why read the Bible? Why don't we read the Bible? Why, why, why is this true of us in our culture? Because it's, it's empirically true. Why do we not engage the scriptures? If we know that we're going to encounter the power and presence of God, what's keeping us from reading it? And a little bit of a lengthy quote, but here's one writer says it, answers it better than I can. So here's what he says. And then we'll look at Matthew 5. He says, Neglected, dusty, and crisp are three characteristics that describe the average Christian's Bible that sits motionless from the bookshelf in many American homes. It often rests just low enough on the shelf to be noticed, yet it remains high enough to go untouched. And recent estimates purport 3.9 billion Bibles have been purchased over the past 50 years, but there's a vast difference between best-selling and most read. Much has been written on the topic of biblical illiteracy within the 21st century post-Christian society. Pastors are scrambling to motivate their congregations while theologians are bewildered by the Bible's neglect. In contrast to many recent voices, perhaps the problem is not that Christians do not know how to read Scripture. It is much more foundational than that. Instead, the vision for why the text even matters is lost. So I think when you boil it all down, the reason we don't read our Bibles in this culture, in this context, is because we've lost the vision for why the text even matters for our lives. So I'm going to try to answer a lot of questions in this sermon. This, in fact, this is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, and I think that's okay for today. Uh, I'm going to try to answer a lot of questions, but the central question I'm trying to answer is why? Why read the Bible? Why even bother with it? Why does this text matter for your life? And when you answer that question, you actually answer all of the other questions. And here's the core conviction I want to put forth and have us wrestle with. The reason why the Bible matters for your life is because following Jesus matters for your life. And Jesus, so the reason we follow the Bible is because we follow Jesus as Christians. And Jesus followed the Bible. If you know anything about Jesus, he was obsessed with the Bible. He read it, he meditated on it, he memorized it, he hid it in his heart, he quoted it, he taught it, he sang it, he prayed it, he lived it. And as disciples of Jesus, our goal is to have the same relationship with the Bible that Jesus had with the Bible. So all I want to do for the next few moments is talk to you about Jesus' relationship with the Bible. And I want to point out three reasons why Jesus believed the Bible is eternally relevant for your life, why it matters for your life. And so look with me, and we're going to jump. We're going to spend most of our time on point one, but hang with me. Look at the text. Look back down at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and let's dive in. Reason number one why the text matters for your life. Okay, this is near the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. He's addressing this whole crowd of people, and look at what he says in verse 17. He says, 
Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. I would circle that word, fulfill. Okay, here's the first thing Jesus wants us to see right out of the gates when it comes to why the Bible is essential for your life, why you must read it. Jesus says the Bible is telling one unified story that leads us to himself. You want to know what the Bible is? Here's what the Bible is. The Bible is a a story that's meant to lead you into an ever-deepening, life-changing encounter and relationship with the real Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. Look at the word fulfill and, uh, and pay attention to the language here. Well, first look at the word law and prophets. This is fascinating. Look at law and prophets. That's a classic Hebrew way of summarizing the entire Bible, which at that point would have just been the Old Testament since the New hadn't been written yet. But you know the New Testament is writing about the fulfillment of the Old. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. It's all about me. The whole thing is about me. Okay? I fulfill it. Look at the word fulfill. That's that's a word that means to uh, bring a story to an appointed goal. Okay? So think about when you get married. Uh, when, you, when you say your vows and you get married, you are fulfilling your engagement, right? The, 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 the appointed goal of your engagement is this new covenant life together. But the engagement it was never meant to terminate on the engagement. The engagement was pointing. It was telling a story. It was pointing to something glorious and something greater than itself. Jesus says, yeah, everything in the Old Testament is like that when it comes to me. I'm the fulfillment. I am the appointed goal. The Bible's a story about Jesus. So think about it. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. What does God do right after sin enters the world and we break trust with God and we rebel against God? What does he do? He tells a promise. He makes a promise. And he says, I'm going to send a Messiah and a king and a savior through, through into humanity as a human being who will save humanity from their sins and who will heal and restore all creation. That's Genesis 3.15. Now, the rest of of the unfolding of this long, drawn-out story is just the long, dramatic, methodical unfolding of God's promise and God's plan to do that. Jesus says, yeah, man, it's all about me. And this is not the only time he says that. There's several places he says that. Let me show you one of them. Luke chapter 24 is a hilarious, kind of funny scene. Uh, Jesus has just been resurrected from the dead. He appears to some of his disciples. They think God's mission has failed because the Messiah was killed. And Jesus takes them on this, his own little how to read the Bible class, a whole tour through the scriptures. And he says, no, man, you guys are missing the point. The whole story has been building up to this. The whole story has been building up to the suffering and glory of me, the Messiah. And then here's what Jesus says. I'll put it on the screen for you. Our Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to his disciples in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? How many of you in this room find the Bible confusing, frustrating, don't have a clue how to begin to read it, how it all fits together? That's me. I went to Bible college and I still feel that way, right? Many, all the time. Jesus says, yeah, I'm the key that opens the whole thing up. All its parts hold together in me. 
Andrew Wilson's one of my favorite writers. He's got a great quote where he says, if you read the Bible as if it's mainly about Israel or mainly about you, it's like reading with a cold heart and your eyes shut. When you discover it's mainly a story about Jesus and God's purpose for the nations through him, your heart catches fire and your eyes are opened. See, what Andrew Wilson is saying is that when you read the Bible as a story about Jesus, you actually understand the point of the Bible is to bring you into an encounter, a life-changing encounter with the real Jesus. Then you understand why it matters for your life, and it actually becomes fun and fruitful and engaging, apart from maddening and frustrating. Because as I said a second ago, let's be honest, the Bible can be that way. Um, If, you know, it's, uh, it's... if you look in your table of contents, there's all this diversity in the Bible. It's, it's long, it's complex, it's drawn out. There's all these names that we don't know how to pronounce, right? Uh, it's there, if, there's two different testaments. There's 39 in the old and 27, 39 books in the old and 27 books in the new. There's 66 books altogether and written by all these different authors and all these different genres like law and poetry and narrative and uh, gospel and, and, you know, census reports and genealogies and letters and all written over the course of thousands of years and to put it on, you know, icing on the cake, three different languages, right? Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, none of which uh, ancient, you know, we don't use, we don't, we don't speak or use or write in those ancient languages anymore. And so there's this tendency that I feel in my life, and I know you feel it, when you come to the scriptures of like, what do you even, what's the point? How do you make sense of all this? Where do you even start? And it can feel intimidating. It can feel discouraging. It can feel frustrating. I remember growing up, I managed to play a whole year of soccer as a kid without ever understanding the point of the game. Uh, I, I don't know if, that, if I'm that dumb or if my dad is that horrible of a dad. That never, or I'm, I, That's a joke. He's an amazing dad. But... But really, what? You never sit me down and explain to me the rules, like, or the coach was that terrible, or I just was a bad listener? Probably that one. But I managed to play a whole year of soccer without ever understanding the goal, which is literally to put the ball in the goal, right? So I thought the whole point of the game was just to run up and, up and down the field and kick people and trip people. And like, the whole thing seemed like the most fruitless, pointless exercise to me until I understood, like, oh man, the point is to kick that ball into the goal. And then the whole light bulb, the whole thing made sense, right? And then, then the game became fun to me. It became engaging. It was no longer frustrating. Jesus says, yeah, man, don't, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. It's going to be huge for you to remember when you get bogged down in Leviticus in a couple of weeks in the Bible reading project, <laughs> or in a few months when you hit First and Second Chronicles and you're going, what is the point of all of this, man? What is the point of this? And Jesus says, I'm the point. The whole thing is telling you, you need a savior. You need a king. You need, you need Jesus, right? Remember that. I think, not, not to beat a dead horse, but I think this is important for us to focus on. I, I find this image, this illustration, I used to carry this in my Bible for years. I found this to be really helpful. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew five seventeen when he says, I'm the fulfillment. He's saying that I am the gravitational pull of every passage. I'm the gravitational pull. So look at this. Everything in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings are pointing you to Jesus. They're predicting Jesus. They're promising Jesus. They're preparing you for Jesus. And everything in the New Testament, gospels, acts, epistles, revelation, is all pointing you back to Jesus and reflecting on Jesus and rejoicing in Jesus and remembering Jesus and 
looking ahead to Jesus' return. And so the central storyline of the whole thing is the gospel of Jesus, that we have sinned against a holy God, and he loves us enough to pursue us all the way to a cross to forgive us and accomplish for us our redemption. Jesus says, that's why the Bible matters for your life, because you need to know that, and I need to know that. One more quote, man. I love the way Robert Plummer says this. Robert Plummer is my favorite quote about the centrality of Jesus. He says, If the Bible were a wheel, the gospel of Jesus would be the hub that the entire thing revolves around. Think about that image. The storyline of the Bible reveals the need for Jesus, the promise of Jesus, the anticipation of Jesus, the incarnation and arrival of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the promised return of Jesus. The Bible is a book about Jesus. Now, application. Here's why this matters so much. If you don't read the Bible as a book about Jesus and what he has done, the gravitational pull will be to read the Bible as a book about you and what you need to be doing to earn God's favor. And see, this is the way we tend to read the Bible in the religious South. This is the way I read the Bible my whole life as a book of rules that I need to follow and keep in order to earn God's love, as a book of stories of heroes to emulate and villains to avoid. And so I thought the point of every story is, okay, be like Moses and don't be like Pharaoh and be like David and don't be like Goliath. And so I put this pressure on myself to perform and to do better because I thought that was the point of the story. And so I was miserable my whole life because I could never measure up. I was miserable on the inside, and I was miserable on the outside. You can ask my wife. You can ask my two best friends from college who are no longer following Jesus, and I wonder almost every day if I'm not partly responsible for that. Because I was self-righteous, I was legalistic, I was judgmental, and I was perpetually anxious because I thought the whole point of the story was, Adam, you got to do better, and you gotta, you got to try harder. Look, man, let your eyes be open and your heart catch fire when you realize that the whole point of the story is not about what you, who you are and what you've done. It's about who Jesus is and what he's done and the fact that he loves you and wants to save you and bring you into a relationship with yourself and satisfy you forever. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel that runs throughout. It's threaded throughout the whole story. That's the point. And by the way, man, it is so, let me time out. It's so pointless, by the way, to read the Bible as be like David, don't be like Goliath. Because to do that, you can't read it honestly. And it's as pointless as hanging clothes on elliptical. It it misses the whole point. When you read the Bible honestly, I do want to be like David when he slays Goliath. I really do. I don't want to be like David just a few chapters later when he abuses his power as a king to rape another man's wife. And then he becomes a violent war criminal when he has that man violently murdered at war while he's safe and sound at home. You don't want to be like David. That's not the point, guys. That's not the point. You know what the point is when you read those stories? Gosh, David was terrible. I'm terrible. We need, the world needs a better king than David. The world needs a better savior than David. I, I, there, there's got to be something better. Yes, Jesus is the true and better David, true and better Moses, true and better Abraham, true and better Joshua. Jesus, the whole thing is pointing you to Jesus. And Jesus says, first reason why the Bible matters for your life, that's why. 
because it's telling a story that is bringing you into an ever-deepening, ever-life-transforming relationship with the real Jesus. Second reason why he says the Bible matters for your life is because this is not this story about Jesus is not a it's not a fable, it's not a fictitious fairy tale. Jesus says it's absolutely true and it's fully trustworthy. Look at what he says. Go down Matthew 5, look at verse 18. He says, "Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. That's another way of summarizing the whole scriptures. Until all is accomplished. Now notice that language. Keep your eyes on it. Jesus says, truly. I ain't lying to you. I'm telling you the truth, he says. Not one iota or one dot of scripture is going to pass away. Uh, Iota is the smallest Greek letter that exists. And Jesus is representing the whole New Testament when he says that. The whole New Testament is going to go on forever, he says. Not Not an iota is going to fall away. And then he says, not a single dot, which that's referring to these tiny little minuscule dots called vowel pointings that were used for Hebrew and Aramaic pronunciation. So by that, he's summarizing the whole Old Testament. So here's what he's saying. Boil it down. The idea here is that every scrap of ink that was used to write the Old Testament and the New Testament, not a single scrap of it will ever pass away. Every word God says will prove true and trustworthy and real and reliable for all eternity, Jesus said. Now, that's, that's as high as a view of the Bible as you can possibly get. And as disciples of Jesus, that's to be our view of the Bible because that was Jesus' view of the Bible. And I think, I'll speak for myself, I think the reason why, but I think it's true for all of us, the reason why Jesus says this is because he's actually addressing our biggest problem which is the fact that on our own, we don't, we just, on our own, we just don't trust that what God says is good and true and reliable and what's best for us. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 in this story, that is the core lie we believed. Go and look at the serpent's strategy for how he brought the whole thing down. You know what he does? He challenges the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say? That's what he says. But yeah, now let's go back and look at what God said. Did God really say? Is that what he said? Did he, did he really say don't eat from that tree? Did he really say that everything you have ultimately is found in him, that you have everything you need in him? Isn't he holding out on you? Isn't it possible that there's more to life than this? Wouldn't it be better if you were the center of the story? That's a great idea. What if you were the center of the story and you live life according to your own truth, definitions of truth and standards of reality? Hey, that sounds great. And we bit the bait, literally. And so what happens for me in my life, and I think what happens for you, is that same core narrative, those tapes play in our minds all the time. Can I really trust God to be enough for me? Is what he says really what's best for me? And so I think one of the most practical reasons why we don't believe our Bible is because when when you get down underneath the surface, we just don't trust that we really need it that it's really what's best for us, that what God is saying is true and trustworthy and eternally relevant and no thanks. And so Jesus says, if we trusted what God says, we would read the Bible a lot. Side note, by the way, we're going to talk about this a lot over the course of this next year. Trust is the key to intimacy in all relationships, is it not? If you want to be close to someone and experience, you know, the, the, 
love and closeness and depth of relationship. It requires trust, right? The same is true in our relationship with God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, he's the same invitation we had in the garden in the beginning. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to embrace my view of Scripture, which is that all of this, everything God says, is absolutely true and fully trustworthy. Which is to say, Jesus is just inviting you into a, a deep, satisfying relationship with the living God. And I realize that in our culture, this is really unpopular to talk about. You know, we live in a other complications we have with this is that we live in a relativistic culture where we kind of define truth however we want. And so then, then that gives us the freedom to live however we want. And any, any you know, claim to objective, absolute truth is a threat to us. And sadly, that whole framework has infiltrated the church. And so we look at this, we look at Jesus making these kind of statements, and we struggle. We struggle. And Jesus says, I want you to trust me with this, man. Everything God says is true, and it really is what's best for you. And so a couple of quotes here from other, other scriptures that I think are beautiful. I just want to share them with you. I love what Numbers 23:19 says. You'll get here in your Bible reading plan sooner than later. He says, uh, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it? Or he has spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's not going to lie to you. Or the Proverbs 35 through 6 says, Every word of God proves, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. Or Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so here's why it's essential for us to read and know and follow our Bibles. A, because it's a story that leads you into an ever-deepening, growing and in intimacy, life-transforming relationship with the real Jesus. The whole story is meant to show you Jesus. And then B, because everything God says in his word is absolutely true and fully trustworthy for you. And C, finally, to close, Jesus says, everything God says in his word is absolutely authoritative for you. So look at what Jesus says, and we'll close looking at this verse. Uh, Jesus says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of, these, the, uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice some of these words. Look at that word relax. He's not talking about kicking your feet up on a Sunday and watching the NFL playoffs. Uh, he's talking about dismissing or breaking what God says in his word. And so uh, Jesus is saying that God's word is not meant to be broken, but his word is meant to be obeyed. Look at the do language in that verse. He says, uh, God's word, we are to do God's word and then teach others to do God's word, he says in that passage. In other words, we are to obey the authority of God's word. That's what Jesus believed. And so as a church, that's what we believe. And as disciples of Jesus, that's what we believe because that's what Jesus believed. So what it boils down to, think about this, uh, to obey God's word is the same as obeying God, Jesus is saying. So to relax or disobey God's word is to disobey God himself, right? That's how human authority works. It's mediated through writing or it's mediated through speaking. 
So um, if you say to your child, go clean your room or don't hit your sister, or if you say, like I said to, to Lucy, my oldest daughter, yes, I told Lucy yesterday a thousand times to pick up her crayons so that her youngest sister wouldn't eat them. And finally she looked at me and goes, how many times do you have to tell me to do this? I was like, yeah, that's the <laughs> I'm asking the same question. Yeah, that's the point. I should only have to tell you once. And, and when your child disobeys your words... Are they disobeying your words or are they disobeying you? The answer is yes, because your authority is mediated through your words or through your writing. Speed limit sign, do you have to obey those? Those are mediating the authority. When your boss writes you a memo and says, do this and you don't do this, you're acting in insubordinance to your boss, his authority, which he has mediated through speaking or writing. I think I make my point. So here's what Jesus says. I, I think this is fascinating. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth, that pretty much covers all the ground, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. So notice Jesus doesn't say all authority has been given to the Bible. He says all authority has been given to him. And then you know what Jesus does? He mediates his authority through the Bible. See, as Christians, as a church, we follow the Bible because we follow Jesus. And Jesus chooses to mediate his authority through the scriptures. And so, uh, you know, we obey all of the Old Testament commands that Jesus repeats, which are the Ten Commandments and all of the teachings rooted in creation, teachings about sex and sexuality and marriage and all the other commands that are weird to us, like don't eat shellfish and wear blended fabrics, and we're like, what the heck are we supposed to do with these? Well, Jesus says in the New Testament, all those find he's the appointed goal of those, and you're, those all still have a principle of wisdom for your life, but you're no longer obligated to keep those. The, the rules and the commands that Jesus proclaims and reiterates in the New Testament, because we follow him, we follow that, right? And we see the rest of the story as relevant and pointing us to Jesus and all of that. So in my experience, it's not the weird stuff in the Bible that we have a problem with following. It's all the clear stuff that we have a problem with. That's where the authority thing messes with us, is where the Bible is really clear about what to do and what not to do. It's not really the weird laws. We like to focus on the shellfish and all that junk. It's like it's not that. It's the clear stuff. And so Mark Twain had a great line where he said, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they do not understand but the passages that bother me are those I do understand. And so sometimes functionally we take the, prom- the, the Thomas Jefferson approach to the scriptures, so, uh, which means we remove the authority. And so Thomas Jefferson was a famous agnostic and deist in his day. Um, and so he's really famous for taking a pair of scissors and literally cutting out all the parts of the Bible he didn't like or agree with. And so he was left with this little thin mutilated scrapbook of a Bible And uh, if we're honest, we kind of do the same thing. I mean, I do. We kind of do the same thing. We pick and choose what from the Bible we like. And so I like what Jesus says about this, but I don't like what he says about sex and sexuality and money. can't stand what he says about money. I don't like what he says about, you know, having to love my enemies and forgive those who have sinned against me. But I like these other parts. And so we do a little Thomas Jefferson on it. 
and here's what Andrew Wilson, I love Andrew Wilson's retort to that. Wilson says this. He says, whenever Scripture challenges some of our deeply held beliefs, as it often does, we have a choice. We can challenge the Bible or we can let the Bible challenge us. We can do a Jefferson on it, cutting out the bits that we like and uh, don't like and bending the rest, or we can do a Jesus on it, affirming the accuracy of the Bible in spite of the difficulties we have with it and allowing it to refine our view of God, the world, sexuality, and whatever it may be. Personally, I would go with Jesus. So, to close, why does the Bible matter for your life? What well, matters because following Jesus matters for your life. And we follow the Bible because we follow Jesus, which is to say we follow the written word because we follow the incarnate word. Here's what's amazing to me about this story, guys. Listen, you know what, you know what John chapter 1 calls Jesus? The word. The word made flesh. So don't you see what this whole story is saying? Here's where it all culminates. The whole storyline of Scripture is telling you this, that when we distrusted God's word in the garden and we broke God's word to prove his word to us, to prove that what he says is good and beautiful and true and trustworthy and right, to prove that he is faithful, to prove that he loves us, he actually took his word and wrapped it in flesh and came and demonstrated it for us. Jesus is the literal embodying and emblooding and enfleshment of the very promises and presence and power of God. And Jesus comes and gives his life. He lives the life we failed to, to live and dies the death we deserve to die on the cross to prove that God is faithful to his promises and to prove that he has used his authority and stewarded his authority to save the world. That's the story of Scripture. 